These individuals, so they work for political parties, governments, um, consulting firms, a broad variety of actors that we're all well aware of. They often use a combination of private platforms, so WhatsApp or Telegram, and then more open ones like Facebook, Meta, uh, YouTube. The private surveillance industry, other forms of surveillance, um, the criminalization that we see in all of these areas, often it takes place outside of legal frameworks. A second spectrum that we have to keep in mind is between sort of digital and traditional authoritarianism, because there really is no bright line. We concentrate at PEN America on the efforts to repress writers and journalists. It's, it's really uh, asymmetrical that firms operating from open societies are obliged to both interface but also invariably comply with local laws that may be inconsistent. Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, and we're very pleased today to welcome you to the panel discussion, What's Next? U.S.-Canadian Relationship to Confront Digital Authoritarianism. Um, this is the final panel discussion of what has been a six-part series um, that makes is organized with the support of the U.S. Consul, uh, Consulate to, to Montreal, but looking at digital authoritarianism from different authoritarian states to what Canadian Canadians and Americans can do civil society cooperation, uh, collaboration between academics. It's a rising issue, and we're very lucky today to have some of the world's top experts uh, to talk about this and to really um, delve into the issue and help us think about what can be done to confront this. But first and foremost, I would first like to ask the floor, I'd like to introduce U.S. Consul General Anna Escroima, who's the U.S. Consul General to Montreal. I'd like to pass the floor to Anna to make some opening comments. Anna, the floor is yours. Thanks, Kyle. Bon matin, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed or at least survived the big snow yesterday. For us at the U.S. Consulate, it's always a pleasure to partner with the great minds at MIGS. Uh, we've collaborated over the years on several enriching programs. And today, the experts uh, gathered by MIGS, um, both in this panel series and the ones that preceded it, have really helped uh, put their finger on the pulse uh, in terms of the threat of authoritarianism in the cyberspace. And I myself have appreciated the level of thought and expertise that has been shared on such an urgent topic. And today, look forward to hearing what our panelists have to say on what comes next and the urgency of taking action to address these issues. In the US, we are faced with threats on multiple fronts from homegrown and external actors in the digital space. The Biden administration recognizes that no country can face these threats alone and has made it a priority to work with like-minded democracies like Canada. As the US and Canada continue to implement our roadmap for renewed partnership, discussions of cybersecurity and the defense of democracies certainly loom large. And last December, the US hosted leaders of over 100 countries at the Summit for Democracy to strengthen our collective will to confront authoritarianism, fight corruption, and promote human rights. We appreciated Canada's very strong participation and reaffirmation of a national commitment to promote the implementation of the 2019 framework for responsible state behavior in cyberspace and to continue to publicly call out and respond to malicious cyber activity. 
Now, at the summit, the U.S. announced a series of international grand challenges on democracy-affirming technologies to galvanize worldwide innovation of a new class of technologies that can be used in ways that support democratic values. The challenges will take place throughout 2022, leading up to the next summit. And perhaps among our participants today, we'll have a future winner of this challenge. I want to thank you all for joining. I'm excited to hear what our panelists have to say, and I'll turn it back over to you, Kyle. Thank you, Anna, for those opening comments and for outlining the, um, the democracy summit that was held in which Canada participated. Um, so I'd like to introduce our, our five uh, guest speakers today um, in order of who logged on to the event this morning first and the order of speaking. So our first guest is David Kay. David is a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine and a former UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right of freedom of opinion and expression. Nice to have you with us, David. Uh, our second guest is Christopher Walker. Um, Christopher is the Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington. Um, we also are joined today with uh, Suzanne Nossel. Uh, Susan is the Chief Executive Officer of PEN America, a very important organization working on freedom of expression. Uh, we also have Inga Christina Trothig, um, who's a research manager and senior research fellow at the Center for Media Engagement at the University of Texas. And last but not least, we have the only other Canadian on the panel besides myself, Ron Diebert. And Ron is director of the Citizen Lab at the Monk School, the University of Toronto. With further ado, I would like to ask, uh, in, in the order I introduce people, turning to David to maybe make a few opening comments about your work and how you see the issue of digital authoritarianism. Great. Thanks so much, Kyle, for uh, for the introduction and for for inviting me. And, and just a word to say about MIGS. I mean, the work that you do is so important, and I think it's actually very interesting that we're we're holding this conversation under the umbrella of an organization that has within its title the ideas of preventing genocide and human rights abuses. And so much of what we're talking about today, I think, goes to those those kinds of issues. I guess I would start in, in thinking about digital authoritarianism, and I'll keep this uh, hopefully really, really quite brief because I'm really looking forward to this conversation with uh, a lot of old friends who unfortunately I haven't seen in person for a couple of years. Um, but you know, I think it's important to start with legal change. And so I actually wanna mention three different kinds of challenges. The first is that we're seeing around the world governments actually changing the law to make fundamental rights crimes. So whether it's terrorism or false information or information around public health, we see countries around the world basically saying discussion, debate, et cetera, is subject to criminalization. And then the second part of that is that they translate that into the digital space. And so increasingly we've seen individuals for tweets for posts on Facebook, for journalism, simply reporting, doing their work, and finding themselves subject to, uh, to criminal sanction. So one part of the problem is legal change that in many respects uh, kind of pre precedes the digital framework. The second is, of course, extra legal approaches. So if you have the legal, you also have the extra legal. And by extra legal, I mean things that are happening outside of the law. So obviously, Ron Diebert can talk uh, quite deeply about the citizen, citizen Lab's work in this space, but the private surveillance industry, other forms of surveillance, um, the criminalization that we see in all of these areas 
often it takes place outside of the legal frameworks. And then finally, in addition to these legal and extra legal tools that are being used at governmental levels domestically, we also see this happening at the global level. We see authoritarians seeking to essentially take advantage of the space of the Human Rights Council, of the UN General Assembly, of the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, or UNESCO, or other bodies that have been created in order to promote human rights as identified in the UN Charter, as a role of the UN, you see governments coming in and seeking to, to really change the way that normative framework operates and that normative framework is available for the enforcement of fundamental rights. So I think all of those things are happening and it's important and I'm sure we'll get into this. There's a real need for engagement from obviously from the United States and Canada in the forums that they've already created like the Freedom Online Coalition, but also bilaterally and in institutions uh, of the UN and other international institutions. And I, I really look forward to discussing these issues and others uh, with my co-panelists today. Thanks for, thanks for the opening. Thank you for mentioning the Freedom Online Coalition because Canada is, is the chair of that in 2022. So I know um, the Canadian government is, is quite uh, interested in, in, in pushing many of these issues at the international level and supporting human rights. Um, I would now like to pass to uh, Christopher Walker. Um, Chris, the floor is yours. So Kyle, first of all, let me thank you and your colleagues at MIGS and the US Embassy in Ottawa for the invitation to join. Uh, it's really gratifying to have this sort of cooperation between the US and Canada, and it's consistent with the National Endowment for Democracy's interaction with Canada over the years through the annual Lipsid lecture we run that this year and the latest uh, iteration, Ron Debert just delivered a brilliant, brilliant lecture. And so it's great to um, continue this sort of effort between these two uh, democracies. I think what I do just in the short time I have is to touch on uh, three points that get at the um, diversity of the challenge and how serious this is in a broad definition of digital authoritarianism. And I'd, I'd start by saying that first, um, open societies are struggling. And David Kay alluded to some of these challenges, but I think it's important to recognize that for the most part, um, open societies have not crafted uh, rules and norms that are up to the task to address the sort of technological change that's already upon us and that will accelerate in the coming term. This includes surveillance, which is becoming increasingly automated. Uh, relatedly, the use and abuse of data in ways that imp uh, Im impacts privacy and by extension democracy and the content as it relates to disinformation and other distortions of the information environment. And finally, and, and I think this is very much relevant to the, to the normative uh, question, the narrative arguments that affirm liberal rather than anti-liberal norms in the tech governance domain, I think what we're seeing a bit of uh, taking root is that forms of digital insecurity or instability or perceptions of insecurity and instability opens the door for responses that are based on control and order. And those sorts of responses align with the preferences of the leaderships in places like Beijing and Moscow and Riyadh. Um, at the same time, related to this, repressive regimes are emboldened. We see this um, in so many different contexts they're not standing idly by. They're leveraging technology 
in ways that's consistent with their own preferences. The Russian authorities' digital evolution includes, um, just from a historical perspective, uh, a cyber attack on, Et on Estonia using information in malign ways in Crimea seven years ago. And we're seeing a version of this play out again today in real time. And of course, in the meantime, we're seeing this sort of thing uh, go global in the Russian context and in the China context, where digital authoritarianism in a variety of forms is being diffused after being incubated within these authoritarian settings in ways that's profoundly unhealthy for democratic development. And I think I'd conclude by saying that because we can't anticipate that authoritarian regimes will lead the path in creating the norms and rules that are accountable, transparent, and consistent with liberal democratic values, it really falls to the democracies to take the lead on this, uh, both to set a model for these things, to stimulate a race to the top, to hit the brakes on a possible race to the bottom. And if we don't do it, um, certainly no one else will do it. And it's incumbent upon us to find ways to advance that cause. So I'll finish there. Thank you, Christopher, for that um, really deep analysis and, and, and big picture of what's happening in multiple authoritarian states. Um, I would now like to turn to Suzanne Nossel of uh, PEN America. Thank you so much. Well, I'll just offer a few opening thoughts before we get into the guts of the discussion, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm, I'm so pleased to be together with colleagues. I wish we were in person, but uh, this is such an important conversation uh, that uh, I'm glad we've pressed on with it. You know, just in terms of framing, uh, two, two observations to begin with. I mean, one is just the breadth of tactics that we're talking about when we talk about digital authoritarianism, ranging from, you know, tactics to suppress political opposition within a domestic context to new forms of international cyber warfare. They're all along a spectrum of digital authoritarianism. And another, a second spectrum that we have to keep in mind is between sort of digital and traditional authoritarianism, because there really is no bright line. We concentrate at PEN America on the efforts to repress writers and journalists. And it's, it's a continuum of how that takes place in the physical world and the digital world with uh, tactics often combined and married together. And so I don't think we can look at digital authoritarianism in isolation from wider trends of authoritarianism that are at work. And then a few kind of specific observations about why this is so challenging. Uh, and you know, some of these are, are self-evident, but I think it's still useful in terms of a, a frame as we uh, dive into the depths of the discussion. Obviously, the threat is, is protean. It is constantly changing. You know, a few years ago, we were worried about dragnet surveillance. You know, we only really started talking about what was, was then termed fake news, uh, and now we think of as disinformation, really in 2017, in terms of it being a, a, a force affecting politics in our own country. The nature of that disinformation threat has also transformed drastically uh, in the last five years, uh, involving both foreign governments and domestic extremism. There was a, a, an important story yesterday about what's happening in Eastern Europe, uh, a story in the New York Times about efforts to discredit individual journalists and ruin their reputations and careers through online harassment, uh, false al allegations, and how 
that fits together with traditional offline efforts to expand media, uh, state-controlled media, and, and snuff out independent media uh, in Serbia and elsewhere. Second factor, the interplay between governments and private technology confirms uh, uh, making assigning responsibility and mounting responses more difficult than it, uh, it would be if we were dealing with governments alone. Third, uh, an obvious one, but bears mention the technological complexity and opacity of the threats, the linguistic limitations that mean that even tactics of content moderation that may be showing promise uh, in the English language and in, in the West and in other uh, major global languages may be off limits or completely under-resourced in parts of the world where they can do uh, some of the worst damage. Difficulties of attribution for tactics like harassment and doxing and kind of the merging of the hands of government with those of shadowy actors that uh, serve as their proxies. Fourth, so the, what I think of as the razor's edge between technology as an enabler of rights and as an instrument for the repression of rights. And the question of how we preserve what is powerful and compelling in the potential for technology and social media to make possible new connections, to spotlight human rights abuses, to mobilize constituencies, while at the same time curbing its potential as a tool, as tool for surveillance, the suppression of dissent, and the spreading of disinformation. Can we isolate and kind of surgically intervene so that, that those positive characteristics of social media that I don't think the world will abandon, even if, they, uh, if, if there was a way that they could, uh, how that can persist while some of the most palpable harms are addressed and ameliorated. Uh, next, I'd, I'd point to, uh, and, and uh, others touched on this, the rise of imperviousness and the weakening of human rights norms, which is not limited to the digital realm and is a phenomenon that, that I think predates digital repression, but has been sort of accelerated because these abuses don't necessarily fit traditional paradigms, the willingness of authoritarian governments to brush off criticism has undercut the potential for the traditional tools like naming and shaming to make a difference in the digital realm. And it seems like uh, very often, even the most hard hitting exposés and reports uh, don't land the way that they might have uh, 15 or 20 years ago when uh, th those norms were somewhat stronger. And then finally, and David touched upon this, which uh, the phenomenon of sort of the perversion of norms to twist and ultimately eviscerate them, laws to prevent uh, fake news, penalties for disinformation being used to retaliate against dissent, and authoritarians playing offense in normative fora like the UN Human Rights Council. So that's some of what I think we're up against, and I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Thank you. I'd now like to pass the floor to Inga. Inga, the, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so also from my side, obviously, I want to start with thanking Mix and the US Consulate to Montreux for bringing us together to discuss what we already have established as such an important topic. Um, so how Canada, the US and other countries can confront digital authoritarianism is an important topic, obviously, at any time, which is always that liberal democracies are hoping to foster human rights worldwide, right? But it is also a topic of self-defense or protection, which was mentioned earlier already too. And the second aspect becomes particularly clear in an election year. 
And therefore, and like for this very short input that we have at the beginning before we have a longer discussion around the world, for the short input, I just want to focus not on the many examples from around the world in which the liberal use of technologies threatened human rights, but instead I want to focus on how the US in 2022 isn't well prepared for online attacks on its democracy. And really just two, like three things I want to highlight. Um, first, not everyone is threatened to the same degree. Um, second, online behavior has offline roots. And then finally, and as a result of the previous two points, we need holistic but targeted policy initiatives. And I do feel like all of these three points that I'll elaborate a bit further on have like implications for like our broader fight, I would call it. So with regard to the first point, where I just said not everyone is threatened to the same degree. So I want to extrapolate from structural inequalities that we're well aware of in our society and they perpetuate online. So um, research from the Propaganda Research Lab at UT Austin, we've been studying the various ways in which global producers of social media-based propaganda efforts focus their strategies. And one of our lab's key findings in the US in this instance has been that these individuals, so they work for political parties, governments, um, consulting firms, a broad variety of actors that we're all well aware of, they often use a combination of private platforms, so WhatsApp or Telegram, and then more open ones like Facebook, Meta, uh, YouTube, in bids to man manipulate minority voting blocks in specific regions or cities. So for instance, they pay particular attention, or they did um, with regard to the last election, by spreading political disinformation amongst immigrant and diaspora communities in Florida and North Carolina, which are swing states. And they've continued to be active throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and we expect like similar efforts to scale up again for the 2022 midterm elections. And some of this content comes from US groups hoping to sway the vote for a certain candidate, but a lot of it has murky origins and less than clear intentions. It's not uncommon, for instance, to encounter content either claiming or seeming to be from Venezuela, Russia, India. Then I keep the second point really brief. There was just my main comment that online behavior has offline roots as well as offline impact, obviously. And this is somewhat that I think as a sociologist, I would argue always needs to be included in any mid to long-term effort to counter online ills which gives a segue to third and finally, just the, the claim or the proposal basically to have on the one hand holistic and on the other hand targeted policy initiatives. Holistic meaning that they should include attempts of technical interventions and disruptions, but also societal engagement. And then what I mean with targeted is that we need this because even for one country, I just gave an example of, in this case, the US, the disinformation that reaches individual voters is shaped by their background, often also their language skills or the location where they live. Um, but still, there are principles, and I think we'll discuss this much further in our discussion, that I think should guide all of them. And one of them is transparency. Another one would be keeping end-to-end -end encryption. Um, yes. So maybe we can talk about that more later. So last but not least, I'd like to pass the floor to Ron Diebert um, of the System Lab. Ron, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Kyle, and to you and your colleagues at MIGS for inviting me here. I'm really glad to be on this panel with uh, a lot of uh, old friends and some new ones as well. So I'm, I'm going to keep my remarks as brief as possible in the opening here to get into the conversation. I think we all agree that we're living in in pretty disturbing times right now there is this worldwide descent into authoritarianism that we can 
actually uh, measure uh, by a number of different indicators. And there are many factors contributing to it, uh, among them the digital ecosystem, which happens to be uh, mainly my interest uh, among those factors. Um, one thing I wanted to say right off the top is I think it's important to establish that the problem is not something over there. Um, there's a tendency among people who, who live in the West and countries like Canada and the United States um, to think of it that way, but it is truly a transnational problem in a, in a number of different uh, ways. First of all, we are seeing a lot of uh, transnational repression through digital means, crossing borders. So in report uh, after report at the Citizen Lab, uh, we have documented uh, activists, refugees, people who have moved abroad to countries like Canada, hoping to uh, uh, seek shelter and, and flee from repression, actually still being subjected to it in very sophisticated ways. Um, it's also transnational because a lot of the tools that are enabling the spread of authoritarianism happen to be manufactured or based in Western uh, jurisdictions, in uh, companies that are headquartered in Europe, in the United States, in Israel, in Canada, um, and a lot of prominent individuals uh, who are in, in the West, in countries like Canada, even former prime ministers um, and, and uh, people who are close uh, advisors to them are linked to the phenomena that we're seeing here. So this is not a, an issue that can be neatly divided into certain parts of the world, everything's fine, um, and other parts of the world are where all the bad things are happening. We need no greater evidence of what I'm talking about than the events of, of January 6th, and not only everything that preceded it, but the, but the, the um, uh, events that are happening now that are related to it that look really troubling to me as I think about the future of the world and our planet, uh, the prospects of, of the descent into authoritarianism that we are witnessing in the United States is profoundly uh, troubling to me and I know many other people around the world. And I'll just say that kleptocracy and organized crime and corruption are, are essential elements uh, to the spread of authoritarianism. We can't consider authoritarianism without looking at uh, greed and kleptocracy, people enriching themselves at the expense of others, um, twisting the rule of law for their own personal gain, um, and, and we're seeing um, an erosion of norms that other people talked about uh, related to that. Um, I'll just conclude by saying, um, as I think many people know, I'm the director and the, the founder of the Citizen Lab. At the Citizen Lab, we do research that I describe as kind of digital accountability research. We use a mixed methods approach. Uh, we leverage uh, computer scientists, engineers, lawyers, area studies experts to do the work that we do on a, on a global basis. And we're part of a community, a growing community of people who are doing the type of kind of open source uh, counterintelligence work for civil society is the way I think about it. And, uh, and of course, the findings are, um, are, are uh, you know, uh, it's like going on a world tour of the abuse of power with each of our reports that, that, that come out um, one after the other showing, uh, you know, really palpable evidence of what we're talking about here. And if it wasn't bad enough, we ourselves uh, myself and, and the staff of the Citizen Lab have been targeted uh, 
perhaps because of, of the success of the work that we're doing. Um, but, but that's a big problem. Um, and I know it's a problem for investigative journalists. Journalists are being targeted uh, worldwide. Um, let me say that, you know, we're, we're here uh, as a kind of Canada-US initiative, a joint initiative. Um, Canadians tend to have uh, a, a tendency uh, to um, uh, sometimes look down on, on what's going on in the United States. But I think when it comes to addressing the problems that we're all interested in here, we've got a lot of catching up to do as a country. I would go so far as to say we're kind of asleep on this file uh, because we've seen some significant progress, regulatory progress in the United States, especially around one of the areas that we're focused on at the Citizen Lab, which is this uh, uh, spyware marketplace uh, that my colleague David Kay uh, once described as a wild west. Well, we're seeing some progress happening uh, in the Biden administration, US Commerce Department, um, bringing some measure, it's not gonna solve the problem, but some measure of accountability to this space. I think it's time for uh, the Canadian government to get off the sidelines and at least start adopting these measures at a minimum uh, to try to um, uh, you know, do what is right from the perspective of liberal democracy. This is not the time to be sitting on the sidelines. This is a, a crisis, frankly, in light of, of uh, the existential fate, uh, problems we face as a species on this planet. So I'll leave it there and I look forward to the conversation. I think you, you place this very well, um, placing the challenge at hand, but also highlighting um, that there are certain things that Canada could learn from the United States that, that we have to get some urgency to this and, and, and see what we can implement uh, within our own uh, within our own borders. Um, so um, for those who are watching on our different platforms, um, you're welcome to submit questions. Um, you can do that on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook. However, I do have some questions prepared for our guest. So I'd like to maybe start first with David. Um, um, David, I'm wondering in your role as, as when you were the UN Special Rapporteur, why was surveillance technology on your radar as a freedom of expression issue? Was there something that, that, that came up that made you just seize this or is it something that you've been following for quite some time? Oh, it was mainly just the persuasiveness and compelling, uh, you know, compelling reporting of Citizen Lab <laughs> and, and, and others. No, but I mean, really, there, there's a couple of things. Um, first, it's clear that surveillance technologies are used to undermine basic foundations of democratic life, of the elements that people need in order to engage to be public participants. Um, and, you know, we saw, and Citizen Lab and Amnesty International's uh, tech group uh, saw this and reported on this, all of this, um, this use of technology in order to undermine government criticism and to criminalize it, in order to create a sense of uncertainty and fear even that one might be targeted by the state for the content of one's commentary, reporting, or whatnot. And so it was very clear that there was a, an intersection between the use of technology and the exercise of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. So that was, I mean, in some ways that was easy. And I think one of the, th that is the diagnosis and the ability to see the problem. And I think actually 
in listening to to my colleagues over the last several minutes, I think it's it's really remarkable how broadly scoped this particular problem is. I mean, we see that it's it's a question of surveillance, but it's also a question of all of these different things that Chris, Inga, and Suzanne have have identified, uh, and Ron has identified here, and and I think that given the fact, and this was, I think, if I can just say based on my experience as UN Special Rapporteur, given the fact that the diagnosis and the analysis of the situation is is really quite well understood. I mean, we, we really do, I think, know the different elements of this authoritarian assault on rights and the rise of authoritarianism around the world. The real question is, what can democratic societies do? What should governments be doing? I mean, Ron mentioned some of the things that we're seeing out of the United States with respect to the private surveillance industry. And that, that stuff is really important. But we do need to see how that kind of domestic approach can be internationalized in a way and translated into concrete steps that states take, that states are obligated to take at the domestic level, that create a kind of enforcement regime at the international level. Those are the kinds of things that really require, you know, basically translating all of the analysis and diagnosis that we've seen here already into concrete steps that that states and international organizations can take. And I'm I'm not sure we're there yet in terms of what states should be doing and, and actually are doing. I'd, I'd like to go back to Ron. Um, Ron, um, I, I think your comments were, were you, you told us like not to just focus on authoritarian states, but there are there are companies in the West that, that are also engaging in this. And I'm I'm wondering if you could tell us about how much the spyware industry has grown over the past few years and and besides the U.S., are there other countries that could be a model for Canada at looking at regulation or, or looking at this wider problem? Well, to answer the first question about the spyware industry, first of all, I would situate it in a, a, a broader cross-section of uh, privatized uh, security services as a whole. So you have a whole range of, of tools, technologies, and private companies that provide uh, equipment and products and services to governments that enable them to do various things. Some of them are sold under very benign uh, sounding terms, uh, like cybersecurity, for example, uh, when in fact they're um, oriented towards uh, either um, dual use applications. So they may have some benign purposes or benign sounding purposes, but can easily be reoriented to something more offensive. Um, or they're uh, actually marketed precisely for offensive means. And, and the problem is overall, globally speaking, there's very little regulation over this entire marketplace. And, and part of it is also a byproduct of the fact that we've lived through this profound change in uh, the communications environment uh, with digitization, with surveillance capitalism. Uh, every one of us now carries at least one of these 24 hours a day seven days a week with us at all times that offers a window into our private lives for those on the outside looking in. And there's a you know massive global industry around extracting data from us relentlessly, primarily for the personal data surveillance economy. 
So a lot of the spyware industry, the surveillance industry, is effectively piggybacking off an already um, uh, uh, extractive, uh, uh, insecure, poorly regulated digital environment uh, that we live in. In terms of uh, regulation, other countries, um, first of all, I just want to say I agree 100% with uh, what my colleague David Kay just said that, you know, we have seen some uh, promising initiatives uh, domestically in the United States. I, I think immediately these had a pretty pro profound impact on some segments of this marketplace and on uh, some of the companies in particular that were put on. I'm talking about the U.S. Commerce Department blacklisting NSO group, Kandiru, and other um, hack for hire firms, immediately this had an impact on their bottom line. Didn't scare away all investors, sadly enough, um, but it, it would certainly make some people think twice because these, these are very lucrative industries as well. He's exactly right though. We need to internationalize those type of measures. And the way I'd look at this in terms of effectiveness is kind of like my colleague, John Scott Railton at the Citizen Lab uses this analogy of a three-legged stool. So we have civil society, we have governments, and we have businesses. All of them must be working together. Uh, civil society can mostly act as an advocacy um, uh, component of this and as a watchdog uh, along the lines of the work that the Citizen Lab and Amnesty International does. Uh, governments, we need them to regulate. We need them to pass laws, and we can get into it in our conversation about what those laws would look like, but we shouldn't forget the private sector as well. Uh, the fact of the matter is we live in an environment where we defer responsibility over so much of our private lives to these massive tech platforms that have visibility into a lot of the malfeasance that's going on. They need to act responsibly, and if they don't, they need to be compelled to do so through principled democratic governance. It's really interesting that we saw... Um, uh, WhatsApp uh, and, and Facebook together, Sue NSO Group, uh, Apple uh, joined them recently in a lawsuit of their own. We need to see more action like that, as well as them taking measures to prevent uh, the exploitation of their platforms uh, by um, these malicious actors. I'd like to turn to, to Susan now. Um, Susan, you mentioned that um, in open societies and democracies, journalists writers are being targeted and we heard from others as well that uh, that in many cases you know from serbia hungary journalists are, are 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 under attack i'm wondering if you have any ideas about what canada or the us could do or collaborate on in order to protect journalists globally from uh, digital harassment digital attacks digital disinformation sure you know we we uh, put a lot of focus on that at in America, uh, we have a major program that's focused on harassment of writers and journalists, an online harassment field manual that now uh, has been translated into French and Spanish. We're in the process of completing an Arabic translation, and those resources are in, in urgent need uh, globally. And it's not just uh, a set of online resources. We've done now trainings and interventions in more than 100 U.S. newsrooms based on the content of that manual, equipping editors and publishers to protect their journalists on the front lines from harassment and to take steps, both legal steps, uh, steps in, in human resources departments, policy development to 
safeguard journalists, uh, support journalists, go after uh, attackers where possible, engage law enforcement where appropriate. And so that is a nascent field that I think uh, needs to be expanded globally. And that's one place to put emphasis. We're not the or only organization, but it's a sort of a small, relatively contained network of organizations that are working to combat this scourge globally, working also with the major digital flat platforms on key steps that they can take, some of which uh, could be the basis of regulation to modify their design so that they uh, better enable users, not just writers and journalists, but really anybody who is targeted by harassment to protect themselves. And these are things that can be done. Now, we're a free expression organization uh, at Pet America. So whenever we look at solutions, we analyze them through a free expression lens. And so uh, we have a report uh, out that details what social media platforms can do without impinging upon freedom of expression protections. We have another report, uh, not yet out, but forthcoming in the next few weeks, that's based on a survey of journalists about how they're dealing with disinformation in the context of their work. And what it will reveal is that 97% of those who we surveyed uh, identify disinformation as a serious problem for their work, but just one in three believe that their newsroom is doing a good job to protect against it. And these are journalists in the United States, but you know that if a, sur a similar survey was done globally, that the responses, the, the problems would be probably, if anything, only more acute because of newsrooms that are more poorly resourced and that are under even more direct attack. So there are urgent needs for training, for sophisticated technical tools to verify information, uh, for safeguards for journalists who are uh, come into danger because of the uh, reporting and the engagement that they uh, have with purveyors of disinformation. So there's a whole line of work that needs to be developed and supported. Some important organizations have made some progress, but there needs to be much more. You know, when we think about the role of governments, of course, uh, we have to move cautiously. One of the most effective tactics engaged in by authoritarians to discredit and dismiss their opposition is to link them to outside political influences. So to obtain funding, take trips, or receive other forms of support from Western governments can feed into false government characterizations of independent organizations as under the influence of foreign entities. So I think it's extremely important to support those organizations and networks that avoid those problems of perception and, and potential reputational damage. Uh, you know, it's difficult to do. It requires proceeding very carefully. Uh, but I think that is, uh, you know, how the U.S. and Canada should be thinking about how they intervene. Obviously, the Stigma is far greater when it comes to direct U.S. assistance as opposed to Canadian, but I, I think those distinctions uh, are, are gradually eroding and will uh, erode further. And so I think that's something to be very leery of. I think these new steps, the USAID fund to help journalists defend themselves uh, against uh, defamation claims, the investment in the International Fund for Public Interest Media, you know, those are positive, just better resourcing the sector to meet against these, these threats. Something that I think deserves a lot more attention is the interface between social media companies and authoritarian governments. You know, we know that social media companies 
essentially must oblige themselves to adhere to the law in the jurisdictions in which they operate. Otherwise, they'll be thrown out or shut down or forced to withdraw, uh, as has happened in uh, parts of the world. That's why the major social media platforms are not in China. But we know really very little about how they interface with these authoritarian governments. And they interface uh, routinely and intimately on not just the enforcement of local law, but also government's ideas about what it means to enforce the company's own community guidelines and practices. And I think that's an area where we really need to shine a much brighter light and, and in so doing, elucidate the ways in which social media companies, I fear, have become enablers of authoritarian governments uh, in that, that very uh, routinized day-to-day -day interface that they have and to uncover how, you know, what sorts of measures and protections can help to address, you know, what what I think is 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 an, a piece of the puzzle that is largely outside of public view. Some social media companies do publish uh, information about notices and takedowns that they receive from governments, but there there there's a far that's the tip of the iceberg. There's a far more uh, intrusive uh, and uh, rich engagement that happens largely outside of public view. Thank you, uh, Susan. I, th I think your last point is, is a fascinating one. I think we really need to, to shine more light on it. And it's a perfect segue to, uh, to Chris. Um, Chris, um, I'm sure you'll touch upon this, um, but I'd just like to kind of mention that you developed the concept of sharp power to describe the rising influence of authoritarianism around the world. Um, I'm wondering if you could go into a bit more detail and perhaps touching on what Susan said, but what role do modern technologies play in this political landscape and in the, the changing um, um, current balance of power? So maybe I'll, I'll take the liberty of building on something Susan Suzanne just alluded to, which is it's, it's really uh, asymmetrical that firms operating from open societies are obliged to both interface, but also invariably comply with local laws that may be inconsistent with free expression and, and uh, international uh, liberal values, um, or with the norms through intimidation or other means that oblige such companies to behave in those ways, where at the same time, the home-run companies operating out of places like the PRC or the Russian Federation uh, have no such limitations when they operate beyond their borders, and to the extent we're addressing them, it's very, very difficult. It speaks to the pervasiveness and the scale of the technologies and the information that is flowing in ways that we just weren't um, ourselves obliged to deal with a generation ago. And I think this really gets to the one of the main areas of the, of the challenge. Just add in terms of the kind of normative defense, what was really surprising to, to many people looking, for example, at what happened to Google and Apple in Russia in the not too distant past was how few other uh, technology companies or democratic governments stood up to raise the issue and provide some normative defense uh, just at a basic level. And one could make a similar observation about uh, innumerable examples in the context of China. And I suppose this is also the case in countries uh, where these sorts of interface uh, interfacing activities are going on beyond the ones that even make it into the news. I'm thinking, for example, of the Gulf in this context. So hold that thought in mind. And, and just to address your question, Kyle, 
you know, our conception of sharp power as it emerged over the years, it really censors on efforts at censorship or the use of manipulation to degrade the integrity of independent institutions. Um, and I think what's so striking is that over time, so many of the sorts of influence uh, activities that one would have typically described under a different classification, um, under a classification relating to attractiveness or persuasion or enhancing an image, really doesn't fit for so many of the activities that are emanating from um, the authorities, say, in China or their proxies. And this is a real issue because at root, when you look at what's happening in the university sector, in the media sector, increasingly in the technological domain, the preferences that are pursued in earnest domestically by the authorities that have unchecked power in a place like the PRC invariably are infusing the preferences beyond their borders. It's not to say that they can see those through wholesale when they engage, but to the extent there aren't forms of resistance, there aren't uh, civil society groups who understand the challenge and can put them squarely into the discussion, it means that open societies are vulnerable. And in fact, the sorts of things that we've seen most acutely and what worries me most is the uh, swing states or middle performing states that are deeply engaged with resources from China. They need those resources. It's not the issue of whether they need them or not. It's the conditions and the norms under which they accept them. And so um, one article that we really uh, zeroed in on these issues, I co-authored with my colleagues, Shanti Kalathil and Jessica, Jessica Ludwig in the Journal of Democracy called The Cutting Edge of Sharp Power. And at root, we got at how Russia and China in particular are enhancing both their information activities and their technological capacity in fields such as AI that are used to manipulate public perception and otherwise shape the information environment to the extent that the norms that the governments in those countries take precedence and then are diffused beyond their borders, it means, again, invariably that we're going to be in a much tougher situation from the perspective of uh, having democratic liberal norms flourish uh, overseas. And I just make one observation that's relevant to the North America discussion, which is to the extent technology really is emerging as a pathway for this kind of information manipulation, surveillance manipulation, and the like, we can understand why it is that the authorities in China would seek to defend their home run technological industries, even to the extent of taking uh, undertaking hostage-like activities to defend those corporate interests. And so I think we have to reckon with the seriousness and the purposefulness of these regimes as they seek to change the center of gravity. Thank you for referencing um, the two Canadians, the two Michaels who were who were imprisoned in China for three years um, and held in a ransom for the Huawei executive. Um, so uh, people that are following, please uh, pose a question. Um, if you have any questions, just put them in the chat function. And if they're directed towards anyone in particular, we still have about 20 minutes or so. Um, I would like to maybe turn back to, to, to David. Um, David, there was a lot of comments saying, yes, authoritarian states are misusing technology, but also um, as Ron said that we also have technology companies in Western in democracies that are exporting um, um, their technology that can be misused. I'm wondering how can democratic states hold 
their own domestic companies accountable and demand more transparency and tighter export control? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to hear what Ron has to say about that as well. But one thing, one thing to, to keep in mind is that governments tend to have some of these tools already. And the U.S. Commerce Department has already shown that it has the tools in order to, as it did late last year, blacklist a company like the Israeli NSO Group. Um, the, the, there, there are also obviously questions about restraining one's own companies. So not just restraining companies that may also be operating in democratic or headquartered in democratic countries, but, but also operating within one's own country, uh, headquartered in one's own country. And in that sense, some of the things that the State Department has done has, have been pretty useful in terms of sort of encouraging companies to take advantage of the tools of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights in order to think through their export uh, regime, the clients that they have, the development, the design of their technologies, and so forth. And so there are tools out there, tools that already exist in order to constrain uh, this kind of behavior. But I think, you know, one other thing that we might think about is whether individuals who are victims of transnational repression have the tools to basically achieve any kind of remedy when their rights are violated. So to give an example, several years ago, the government of Ethiopia was found to have conducted surveillance against an Ethiopian American activist who was in Maryland in the United States. And this individual sued the government of Ethiopia for that intrusion under US law. And, um, and the US courts basically said, we don't have jurisdiction over Ethiopia under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And I mean, that could be a whole other panel. But, but what it suggests, I think, is that there needs to be a bit of focus in addition to the high-level policy and sanction-oriented approach. There also needs to be some consideration of whether existing rules related to how individuals bring claims against either governments or, or, or companies transnationally whether they have the tools to do that. And I think that might be a space that could be ripe for some articulation and legislation uh, by governments as well. Well, I, I guess it's a bit spotty. I mean, it's great when your research is profiled and, and you see it on the front pages of newspapers, but that's only one step in a theory of change, let's call it. You want ultimately for those um, for that awareness raising to result in, in some sort of action. and. You're absolutely right about our research has uh, spotlighted Canadian companies. Let me just mention a few over the years. So uh, the company BlackBerry, a uh, very prominent Canadian company, uh, which is now um, has recently folded altogether. Um, back in the 2010s, in the early 2010s, uh, BlackBerry was making all sorts of arrangements with uh, uh, governments abroad to facilitate domestic surveillance through its network and was not being straightforward about it to the public, and it simply got away with it. Why? Because there was nothing stopping them from doing it. Uh, we've done numerous reports on a Canadian company that still exists called NetSweeper, whose technology is being used by internet service providers and telecommunications companies worldwide to censor access to information 
that here in Canada would be considered a charter right protected. Um, there's a company called Sandvine, also has uh, uh, a division here in Canada that's used to undertake mass surveillance by authoritarian regimes. Uh, not that long ago, we saw former Prime Minister Harper hawking surveillance technology for a Canadian Israeli company to the United Arab Emirates, a facial recognition technology. Um, so Canada's got a big problem, actually, and it's quite frustrating to me that we've seen so little action here. Um, as David mentioned, there are tools. It's not like well, we have to invent something new here. Um, we could very simply put in place more uh, extensive export controls around how technology is being exported out of this country and, and really uh, provide a model rather than the type of inaction and, and kind of uh, lethargy we're seeing here at best, uh, in some cases, actually facilitating the sales. It's, it's really embarrassing, frankly, for me as a Canadian to see a former prime minister um, out there peddling this type of surveillance gear. That's a symptom of a deep problem in this country uh, that we have to wrestle with. Here's a concrete suggestion. Um, you know, we think of these uh, surveillance technologies, especially the ones that are used by governments to hack into networks, as something that, that authoritarian governments do over there. And I mentioned before, there's no neat and tidy uh, division here. We saw through the Snowden revelations, for example, uh, that the United States, the Canadian government, they, and the UK uh, all have very well-developed signals intelligence agencies. They don't do the, the type of cyber espionage they do in-house. They contract out to specific companies, maybe not NSO Group or some of the other bad actors that we know about, but they contract out to other companies. Canadian Signals Intelligence Agency does that as well. Um, these governments could get together right now and say, you know what, we will create an allow denialist. We, we can't go so far as to say we won't do this sort of activity um, because it's part of our national security imperative, um, but we will make sure that when we do procurement, when we go and purchase these products and services, we will only do so from companies that follow very rigid protocols in terms of making sure they're doing due diligence over to whom else they sell and that they have proper oversight. So we don't have a situation, um, frankly, the epidemic that we're seeing around companies like NSO Group who just sell to any uh, client and are providing what is effectively a kind of despotism as a service. That's something concrete that could be done now that wouldn't undermine their core mission. The reason it's not being done is because those agencies have for so long thrived in the shadows. Uh, they're not subjected to the type of transparency and accountability measures that we should expect of our own governments in this day and age. That's something we need to do right now. Thank you, Ron, for that sobering view of Canada, but we need to get our act together. And and uh, I know that'll stick with me long after today's discussion. Um, so I have three other questions coming in. The first um, is for Inga. And and um, Inga, the, the question coming in is, uh, is that you focused on the US election and, and, and foreign interference, digital interference. Um, uh, the person is asking, you know, what concrete measures or strategies should be taken for open society democracies to to kind of push back against against this? Um, so, 
Yeah, obviously a lot of measures uh, should be taken, but um, like coming from our perspective and the research that we have done, we've just realized, okay, there are a few things. Like for instance, with the stuff that we saw on encrypted messaging apps, I am a oh, strong... Am I muted? No. Yes, you're okay. Okay. Um, so the research we've done was focused on encrypted messaging apps, right? So in this instance, content moderation, for instance, is far more difficult. So there are, however, technical measures or things that uh, the companies can implement, for instance, in highlighting if a message has been forwarded many times. Um, but in terms of the content of, for instance, a video or something, there have been groups developing in communities who basically like either the administrators of certain groups um, or just people who are embedded in certain communities in parts of the United States who are implementing their own measures. Like there are things developed like a WhatsApp monitor tool. So where you can develop a dashboard and then you have journalists coming in and evaluating and this and then doing kind of their own fact checking. But a lot of it has to do with like discourse that needs to take place between individuals. Um, and then there are like, then there are legislative steps, which I do think some of the laws that we have could use a bit more teeth because, um, so for example, policy makers should generate legislation that dismantles and punishes computational propaganda businesses. So particularly when they are engaged in spreading electoral disinformation or assaulting vulnerable communities. I think it's still far too easy to find a company that specializes in this work, although they tend to reveal their practices. And I know this is difficult to do in different regions. Policymakers need to determine what is legit, what isn't. We also have government actors engaging in this information as well. But I would still argue that American laws in this instance of like, like defending against propaganda, for instance, would need more seeds, so teeth. So in some cases, this could include criminal penalties for individuals involved in amplifying disinformation or harassing content on topics such as when, where to vote, um, like disinformation in this regard, which is very practical and tangible and can have an immediate impact. Um, and I'm saying that because a lot of the research we've been doing really leads to the conclusion that if we don't try to try to stop computational propaganda, business now is practitioners um, like that will continue to become more powerful, more adept at manipulating public opinion. That is really the one side of the coin. And then the other side of the coin would basically be to take civil society initiatives or to take um, people who kind of focus and make complaints to social media companies, for instance, about content moderation lacking in different languages. like. We, we are well aware about the priority set in content moderation. Uh, for instance, the revelations about Arab language um, being still deprioritized and stuff. But that is for around the world, even in the US, we can see that with regard to our various minority and immigrant communities who are more vulnerable to disinformation, simply also because they are targeted in different languages on the more mainstream platforms. So um, listen to those voices as well, I would say. So I'm gonna to turn to Chris and then uh, with a follow-up question to Susan. Um, Chris, there are many large scale uh, Chinese, like Chinese big tech companies that have been implicated in surveillance of the Uyghur minorities in China who, um, who are suffering um, terrible human rights abuses. And, and the US has probably more than any democracy 
has really come forward and tried to block these companies from getting government services in the United States or, or calling them out for their behavior and, and, and listing them by the U.S. State Department and so forth. I'm wondering um, if you could talk a bit more about this, and is this something that other democracies also need to, um, to um, emulate? I think what I take away from the overall discussion, and it's relevant to, to your question, Kyle, is that, that the, the extent to which these um, challenges have metastasized um, on the negative side of the ledger. There's still lots of ways we can use these technologies for, for good and for positive developments and for transparency. But in the context of um, Xinjiang, in all of the contexts that Ron has been alluding to in terms of transnational repression, increasingly in a digital context, I think that the, the core issue is going to be um, really supercharging the norms around these uh, technologies. Because in the end, I think we're going to be pressed um, because of the dual use, the what, what Nicholas Wright calls the affordances of these technologies to um, ensure that at least in democratic settings and democratic actors are abiding by norms, whether they're uh, moving them from a democratic setting outward or whether we are... Um, obliged to deal with these technologies uh, coming from other settings into open societies. If we can't get that right, I fear that the larger picture is going to be very, very difficult. And the Xinjiang challenge is um, maybe uh, just emblematic of, of the challenge we face now, where in this case, the authorities in China, at least as I understand it, have been developing their um, capacities for technological repression in other parts of the PRC in Tibet, in the Uyghur Autonomous Region. And I would argue that, um, and it's apropos of Ron's observation, that we can't look at this as an us or them question. I would contend that the, the sort of incubation of these technologies in this particular instance in, in Xinjiang have relevance for their uh, dissemination and diffusion beyond their borders. So it's really incumbent upon those who want to see the sort of accountable, transparent norms to um, push this as hard as we can across the board. Um, I'm going to pass to Susan. We have a question from um, coming in from online. And Arzu has this question for you, Susan. She says, what can be done from the digital security perspective to help mitigate the risks journalists face online, especially in context of online harassment? Well, thank you for asking. I was going to try to put a link to the PEN America Online Harassment Field Manual uh, into the chat in response, although I don't seem to be able to do that. Maybe the moderators can do so. Uh, it's it's onlinehharassmentfieldmanual.pen.org. Uh, and there really are, uh, in that resource, detailed recommendations for what journalists, writers, and anybody who's been targeted by online harassment can do from a digital security perspective to protect themselves. And it's, you know, it's not rocket science. I mean, I always, um, you know, sort of feel like it's going to be, there's going to be some magic to this that's, uh, you know, well above and beyond what we'd ordinarily think of. But it's, it, it, you know, it's things like encryption. Uh, it's things uh, including how, how, you know, what sorts of passwords you use and how you protect them, where you decide to go under uh, a real name, where you decide determined to have your camera on and off. 
Uh, you know, all of these decisions that we're so used to making on a daily basis really have implications for how we expose ourselves. And that's particularly the case for journalists where we know that people are being targeted. And so it, it's really a kind of discipline that has to be uh, it, it instilled and support uh, for journalists working in newsrooms so that some of these measures, which are frankly burdensome, you know, they're a headache and it's easier not to do them. And they, you know, add friction and, and time and effort to one's daily work. But with the support of newsrooms where possible, that becomes more viable. So I urge uh, you to take a look at the manual. Uh, we're working on getting it into, as I mentioned, more languages. We keep it pretty consistently updated because uh, the tactics and measures change uh, so frequently. And you know, it is essential. It's really sort of become a, a kind of cost of doing business uh, for journalists to have to take this on. And if there are those in the audience who are in positions of authority in the news industry, I really urge you, we can, we're happy to work with you. We work with uh, many dozens of different news organizations on practical ways to get these measures implemented. We've reached the timeline that we said the event would, would uh, conclude. So I'd like to take the time to thank David, Christopher, Susan, Inga, and Ron for joining us. I'd like to thank the um, U.S. Consulate to Montreal for supporting this online discussion on digital authoritarianism. And this is just part of our Institute's goal to kind of create a wider network of Canadians and Americans to kind of think about this, both practitioners and academics um, and human rights activists. So uh, stay tuned, follow us on Twitter, and we'll share these reports, including the one that Chris shared, as well as Sudan from Pan America. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today.